Welcome to People Helping People, a podcast to connect you with brilliant ideas that inspire social change. We explore culture, social entrepreneurship, and people helping people make awesome stuff happen. It is such an honor to be here today with John Rush, President and CEO for Clean Turn Enterprises. Their mission is to strengthen communities with an empowered workforce by creating profitable social enterprises and have built up quite an organization in the last five years. Through the work that they create employment for men and women formerly impacted by homelessness, incarceration, human trafficking, domestic violence, and other challenges. So let's dive right in. John, welcome on the podcast. Yes, thank you very much for having me and look forward to our conversation. Yeah, yeah. great. So can we start off with just a little bit of a background of how you got started and, and what that looked like at the beginning? And yeah, it's, you know, really, because this is a common question, you know, how did you get started in this type of work? Part of it's just the family dynamic. I mean, I grew up in a home that was in Appalachia poverty and I had family members who were wrapped up in a number of things like addiction. And so I just kind of grew up around this kind of environment of negativity and after my time in the Marine Corps, I moved to Chicago, fell in love with the city, and experienced urban poverty. And it was, you know, a little bit, it was quite different than what I had experienced in Appalachia, West Virginia. And just Deb and I, my wife and I, just we moved into a community and made it our own, mm -hmm. where we were the minority and everything around us was significantly challenging. What and were some of the so, big differences in the city? I think the density of the challenges in the city compared to where we were at, I mean, the sheer volume of numbers of people <laughs> was quite different. I think the drug of choice was unique and different between the communities. There was a lot more alcoholism where I grew up than there was on the west side of Chicago where crack was the drug of choice. Okay. I think the availability of, of resources, there seemed to be more resources in Chicago than there were in where I lived in West Virginia, but on a number of resources per person, you think of like the classroom ratio of student to teacher basis, there's probably more resources where I grew up mm -hmm. than there are than there were at the time anyways. I mean now we're talking twenty five years ago. But just because of the number of people and the number of needs. And so there was I think the nature of the family, the family dynamics, there were some unique differences. I do think there, you know, there were a number of race issues and challenges that existed. That To see those differences was interesting to observe over time. I can imagine Chicago with a very different racial makeup from mm -hmm. Yeah, where we lived, where we lived initially, we ended up in Humboldt Park, which was predominantly a Hispanic neighborhood, but when we first moved to Chicago, we, you know, we were in a community that, you know, we worked a lot in a community that was predominantly African-American and we were the minority. And so, and there's a little bit of a, I want to balance a little bit of this because like when I was in high school, I moved to Cleveland and I lived in a neighborhood that was pretty diverse. And so it wasn't like I was, went from straight from Trailer Park, West Virginia to straight West Side Chicago. Mm -hmm. There was an evolution, frankly, even in my own mind, even in my own relationships. I mean that even predated Cleveland, frankly, because we lived in our trailer park until fourth grade, then we moved to Charleston, which for me at the time, Charleston, West Virginia, was like the big city. city yeah. yeah. And transferred, went to a different school, and I went from an all-white rural school that was more Appalachian in nature to a school that was diverse. One of my best friends when I moved in fourth grade, Albert, was black, and like 
we just kicked it off and he lived in uh, the projects i lived up on coal branch heights and we rode the bus together and like and it was amazing just a great friendship and so my world started to expand a lot earlier than my time after the marine corps Got would maybe indicate but and then when we moved to cleveland and then I was very active in sports, and that naturally led to a, a diversity of friendships. I played basketball and just had a great time. And, and so, sounds like you uh, moved around a lot. We did a little bit. Yeah, that's quite. Yeah. And then moved. And then after the Marine Corps, you know, I just we moved to the city with the not necessarily the goal of staying there, but we moved there because I was. Well, that's where I went to study. And at the time, I was studying ancient languages. I thought I wanted to be involved in faith-based work. And I uh, just fell in love with the city and then uh, volunteered at a homeless shelter. And a lot of the guys I was working with were having difficulty finding employment. Mm. And so I thought, well, if there's a way to kind of help with that piece, practically, how awesome would that be? And that, that was where the seed was planted. Worked with a couple of nonprofits, worked at a couple of nonprofits, was involved in starting and growing different uh, ventures and different roles and capacities, and then ended up going to, to business school just because I really enjoyed the way business could be leveraged to yeah. impact communities in a positive and a sustainable way. And so... How did you make it to Columbus? Yeah, there was a microfinance organization in Chicago that was led by a fellow whose dad is from Columbus. Okay. And a group of philanthropic investors said, hey, look, you know, we'd like to start something here. Would you be willing to consider coming down here and starting something? My wife is from this area, and so she was like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> and so I like to start them, and very entrepreneurial from that standpoint. Like, I do get, I kind of get bored a little easy. And so, and the timing worked out nice. I mean, personally at that time, I was transitioning out of an organization in Chicago. My dad was dying of cancer. So I, you know, I was spending a lot of time with my dad in 2011 before he passed away. So it was a pivotal year both in terms of making a pivot and also just in a, just a pivotal year yeah. in a lot of ways, personally and professionally. And so we're like, wow, what an opportunity to come down to Columbus and kind of repeat some of the experiences that we've had here in Chicago and also be closer to my stepmother and be a resource for her. Mm -hmm. So so we did and uh, launched in 2012. Okay. And when you launched, you didn't launch with just one business. <laughs> yeah, we, that was crazy. So. Our business plan was about 10 slides long, a lot of pictures, a couple of words, and even fewer numbers. So not your ideal business plan from <laughs> any aspect at all. We launched with six business lines, and all of the business lines were service-oriented. Most of my experience, I've done some consulting and I've been on some nonprofit boards where we've developed product-based enterprises, but 80% of my experience has been service-based, and so that was natural for us to focus on the service industry. So we launched turn paint, paint services where we turn units for apartment complexes, housing development projects, etc. We did lawn services. We did property preservation where we took care of vacant foreclosed homes. And of course, this was 2011-12, so we're, we were still in the middle of a mess. And yeah. I mean, we're still there's still quite a few. And there's still plenty of opportunities there, frankly, in that space. But and then we had uh, a lawn care, and then we had general labor, and we had demolition, and we had cleaning janitorial. So that was six. I think I said one of those twice. Yeah. That's why I said it on my hand here. But like there was six. We scrapped turn paint, mate, and property preservation after the end of the first year. Okay. Why? One, we looked at the gross margins and thought, you know what? Like at this point in time, given the amount of capital that we've launched with, we don't think we can tap into as much of the market as we feel like we can. We don't have enough resources to invest in the training that's necessary 
the management infrastructure that's required to generate the gross margins that we need to make this a sustainable model. From a cash flow standpoint, the term paint main services was more challenging to manage because you would have, in some cases, 10, 15, $20,000 unit that was turned, but you wouldn't see the cash until 30, 60, 90 days later. Oh, wow. So it was bigger nuggets <laughs> of cash out the door before you'd see cash in. And so now if we had more capital to launch, to invest in stronger management, more robust training, would it have made more sense to keep it on the front burner? Maybe, maybe, yeah. So we scrapped term paint main, property preservation, very similar reasons why we did that. Also, a big customer of ours was Bank of America and Safeguard, who entered into negotiations where Safeguard was acquiring their field asset division. So they were taking on their foreclosure portfolio to maintain it. And so then we were going to become kind of a sub of a contractor. And so anytime that happens, you're losing some of that revenue because you're at that point kind of a third party. And so when we ran the numbers and saw the complexity of that business model, we thought given our limited resources and again, our limited capital, you know, where are we going to focus? How are we going to focus? Maybe we should kind of ax that one too. I should say that even though we're axing these business lines, it's not as if we're axing staff because as we're axing, we're pushing volume on the other business lines that keeps the folks that we have employed, employed, right? So we're not axing people. We're not saying, oh, sorry, we're cutting this business line. See you I know, later. I think that's an important point. You know I mean? So nobody lost a job because we decided to not do a business line. It was more shifting your uh, resource to something that was more profitable. Exactly. Okay. More profitable, more sustainable. And so another piece was that could legitimately, and this is maybe more short-term focus than long-term, which may or may not be a bad, good or bad thing, but like it could legitimately create a volume of opportunities that may not have existed in the other business lines. So for example, property preservation and term paint made by nature requires a higher skill set. Which okay. by nature means more training, which by default means a longer period of time to get equipped and ready for that work. And when I say longer, I don't mean two weeks or two months. I mean three years, four years. Oh, wow. Because the nature of the work is something you don't learn overnight. And so, whereas cleaning services, lawn care services, general labor, interior demolition, there's training involved. It's a skill set. It's a craft to do it, to do it well, for sure. But it doesn't take three years to mm. learn it. It doesn't take two years to learn it, right? And so if we want to maximize the number of employment opportunities for a population of individuals who, on the whole, haven't had a lot of opportunities to receive or take advantage of a robust education and who need a lower skill set, less training intensive opportunity, then these two business lines would be the ones to cut and these four would be the ones to really focus on because we'll get more volume of opportunity. And then from that base, create a stepping stone for folks to be able to at least get into the marketplace mm -hmm. and then from there launch into a career opportunity 
in the marketplace where more advanced training is required that they can kind of work their way into those opportunities, but at least they have a foundation. Got it. So start with something where you can master that and then use that as a platform for something else. Yeah. So that meant integrating into our business model and an intensification of creating training, culture, et cetera, on a career mindset. So sure, if you want to stay and grow with us for the long term, we'd love that to happen. But most people in the professional world balance loyalty to an existing organization with their interests, their career ambitions, their perception of how they want to make a difference in the world, their passion. Therefore, just because you have not grown up in an environment or in a family or in a culture or et cetera, et cetera, where you've had that type of mindset exposed to you, and you've now learned to think with that panoramic view, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be granted that opportunity to have your eyes widened so that you can see there's plenty of opportunities out there, mm. right? And so how do we create a culture? How do we incorporate training to help folks develop a career-minded orientation? So they come in, they hit the ground running, they do a great job, provide great customer service. Simultaneous to that, where do I want to be in five years? Where do I want to be in 10 years? And what do I need to do to get there? Just like most folks in the middle class, upper middle class, bite. They just, that's how you think about professional development. That's how you think. And when people are coming in, that's not really top of their mind. They're probably more focused on. No, yeah, because you've grown up and it's like, what am I going to eat today? You know, yeah. How am I going to pay for the heat bill today? Or how am I going to pay for the AC today? Or how am I going to get my kids to school today? How am I going to, I don't have any transportation. Like everything's tiered into the urgent. And so the mindset is, urgency. It's mm-hmm. today. It's not, what am I doing in three years from now? What am I doing a year from now? No, what am I doing? I'm surviving today. Yeah. Like it's a survival mindset, which is a, there's a lot of benefit and value and things that are learned from being in that tearing to the urgent, mm-hmm. but that sometimes is lost with folks that are, that haven't had that experience because having that tearing to the urgent mind, you're creative, you're innovative because you're scrapping. I mean, you're entrepreneurial, like there's, there's some, you can't fail. So you gotta get it done. You want to survive. Whereas if you have never, if you've grown up and it's always about three years or five years, you can get a little lazy and get a little lackadaisical. You can get a little, a little entitled and a little like, you know, like forget you. I'm not working for $10 an hour. I got a college degree. I owe this much in a loan. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm not going to do that. Like, it's, so it's, it's fascinating to see, you know, like, so we wanted to, so that was back to the business line okay. cutting. We cut those two, kept four. And then over time, the lawn care, the general labor, we gradually realized the seasonality of the lawn care was made it difficult to create robust opportunities for the long term. Even a platform to launch into something more long term, it was very difficult to manage that piece. It was more capital intensive to scale, you know, lawn care because you know you're talking about commercial mowers, trailers, vehicles, etc. And then the general labor piece. There's a lot of coaching and mentoring that we do within our company. And we miss a lot of opportunities within our general labor bucket. At least that's how that's what we recognized. Where we would send out, you know, let's say somebody's been in recovery for six months, they're doing great, they're doing awesome, and then we send them on to a general labor job for three months, where they're in an environment that's not conducive to their mm. ongoing recovery, and then they tank. And they're more isolated. They're more not isolated. They're not with. They're not other companies that's, that's aware of or sensitive to or open to creating a culture of support, etc. Mm. It just wasn't the healthiest of options for us, right? And so 
for what we were wanting to do as a company. And so we were like, okay, now we got cleaning services and we got interior demolition, bulk removal. Let's just focus on this is, and we're doing great at it. We got a great team, training, etc. So really at the end of the day, our company as Clean Turn focuses on demolition and cleaning services. And a significant portion of our cleaning services, you know, we rebranded that piece as she has a name, cleaning services. Mm -hmm because a lot of the folks that we employ through that business line are individuals who are coming out of domestic violence, human trafficking, and, and other traumatic experiences. And so we wanted to use that brand, one, to help support another organization in town called She Has a Name that's doing advocacy, volunteer training, et cetera, for folks in that space. So we wanted to help promote their brand. Got it. And we knew we had leverage with the Clean Term brand already, and so people would learn about the She Has a Name organization and the ministry. It's more of a faith-based organization. We wanted folks to learn about that. Two, we wanted to, even more importantly than that, increase awareness around the issue of human trafficking. Yeah. And we thought, what better way to do that than to leverage this name as a means to do that, right? And so, now, whether or not we keep that brand within kind of our umbrella or not, you know, that's something we're wrestling through. We want people to know that we're a cleaning company. And Clean Turn does interior demolition, bulk removal services, commercial and residential cleaning. That's what we do. You need it removed. You need that negative crap out of your house or your office. <laughs> we'll remove it, you know? It's the same thing we're doing every day in our own personal lives. Yeah. We're getting rid of the negative crap and we're replacing it with positive stuff. Like, it's probably a better way to say that. Yeah. But, but yeah, so that's where we're at. Oh, great. Neat. We've employed about 600 folks over the last five and a half years. Like, and I may have already said this, but about 43% of those folks have, you know, are either still with us or have moved on to other opportunities you know, out there in the marketplace. And so there's a lot more we want to do, but it's a start. That's great. And then what are the, some of the backgrounds where you recruit from and what situations are people coming from? Yeah, great question. So we, when we first launched, we really were aggressive in partnering with the existing nonprofit community. And so we developed a relationship with over 50 different organizations across the city of Columbus that are working in the social service space. And so whether it was workforce development, mental health, sober house, sober living, you know, transitional out, like all kinds of different organizations, faith-based, non-faith-based, etc. We still have those existing relationships. We still work with those community partners. Fast forward, about two years ago, we started to do more work with the Department of Corrections in the prisons. And so now we have a pretty robust program where we start working with folks prior to release, where we go into the prison, we develop relationships, we do life skills training, professional development, entrepreneurship training is a mm. recent partnership with the finance fund that we've created where we go in and teach entrepreneurship. And so through that training, we do, through that relationship building, we start to identify folks who we believe will be great team members within mm. Clean Turn who when they get out within that first week of release will jump onto the team and whoever's house or whoever's office they're cleaning or removing stuff in, doing demolition in, whatever, it's gonna be amazing. Like, right, and so we're tapping into ambitious, goal-driven, talented people who right now might be incarcerated, but within that first week, they're gonna come in here and they're gonna hit the ground running. Now, what's it like for somebody who's been incarcerated for 
a long number of years coming back into the world? Like, what are some of the things that they face? Yeah, it depends on how long, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so our facilities manager, he was locked up for 25, 26 years, right? So when he gets out, you know, he tells the story himself. He tells it far better than I can, but he, you know, he's at a Burger King and he orders his meal and the guy behind the counter or lady gives him a cup. And like, oh, he thought, like when he went in, he he didn't get a cup. He got a cup, but he got a cup with a drink in it. Like, he gets this cup and he's like, looks around and he notices this machine that has this big Coke sign on it. So he walks over to this machine and there's a screen in front of him. And he's looking at this screen and he's looking at this cup and he's like, what do I do? And the guy behind him leans against the wall, kind of crosses his leg, like, well, it's gonna be for a while, this guy can't figure out what he wants to drink. Well, it's not that this guy can't figure out what he wants to drink. It's this guy's been locked up for 26 years and has never seen anything like this before. And so Frank says, I had to turn around and I had to ask for help. And he said, the biggest thing that people need to realize when they come out after having served for so long is to not be afraid to ask for help. Mm. And so the guy, he asked for you for help and the guy showed him how to use this computer <laughs> to get his drink, you know. And of course, there's all the other existential challenges that exist. You know, you come back to a community, in his case, he went back to his grandma's house that was boarded up, vacant, because his grandma, of course, passed away when he was incarcerated. You know, 26 years ago, the community that he knew where his grandma lived, that street looks like a different place entirely. And so to have to wrestle through all of that lost time, I can't even begin to imagine what that feels like, right? And so, Got it. So having a place where you've already met them and, and worked with them and they have a place to directly come into, sounds like that's very powerful in terms of, hey, here's one massive thing of how are you going to survive in the first couple of weeks if they have an opportunity to j- jump into and kind of hit the ground running. Yeah. Yeah. You create, you know, as a company, we, we create a culture of family. You know, one of our core values is camaraderie. Yeah. Cause if you're a human being, you want relationship, mm. you want authentic, genuine relationship where you can love and you can receive love. Right. And so in the business world, it's no less important or less than, I don't think it's less desired. Like, like we, nobody wants to work with a boss. that's a butt. Yeah. (laughs) So, and if you're a manager or a boss, really at the end of the day, if you take a step back, no matter how calloused you might be, you don't really want to die and have RIP on your tombstone with butt underneath it. Yeah. Like, right. You want something else on your stinking tombstone or on your little box that you're wrapped up in. <laughs> so you look back on your life and that's what you value is like the relationships that you've had, the people who exactly. you've touched and who've touched you. Like that's what really matters that's, at the end of the day. So. Yeah. And that's all we're doing. Like mm-hmm. as a business, the work, the space, the business is a home. It's a family. And collectively as a team, we're out relieving the stress of our neighbors throughout central Ohio. Our neighbors who have kids who have responsibilities for their businesses, who have responsibilities to serve their customers, and who, at the end of the day, want service that makes their life more peaceful. Mm -hmm. And so we go out, we'll clean the space, we'll remove the debris out of the space, or we'll take all that bulk trash that you have in your garage that you don't want anymore, or when you're doing a renovation project, we'll come in and take out the walls and the ceiling and the carpet, all with the objective of creating one less thing, or taking care of one less thing that you don't have to worry about. 
right? And so doing it as a family, we grow stronger as a family, and as a family, we're serving the community. In a sense, it's like every family, like it's kind of what you want in a family too, yeah. right? You know, you want a family where like, like we're taking care of each other. You think of, I think of myself, like my wife and I, and our eight little kids, you know, are, they're getting bigger now, they're all bigger than me, but like, I still call them little kids, but like, as a family, we want to take care of each other, mm. love each other, support yeah. each other, right? We're gonna have bad days, but we support each other. We're gonna help, we're gonna coach, we're gonna mentor. We're not going to enable, but we're not going to be like, oh, you know, you figure it out, you figure it out, tighten up your boots, son, you figure it out. No, I'm coaching. Like, it's a family, right? It's um, a family. Yeah, you've mentioned this a lot, that there's a support system in place within yeah. here. And so if you see somebody who's slipping, you can almost recognize whatever the warning signs are to, to reach out and actually engage. Yeah. Provide that support and help that's needed to kind of make it through that, over that hill, over that uh, pothole, right? And so literally, <laughs> and then you don't want to become insular. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just about our family. Yeah. It's not just about, so we reach out. In our case, we're serving the community by the services we're providing, but then we also plug in and do different, whether it's the community baby shower that Bottoms Up did not too long ago, or it's partnering with an organization that's doing street outreach for folks that are trying to support their addiction on the street, or it's an awareness event around the issues of human trafficking and where folks can tap into resources. Like there's a multitude of ways that we can take the spirit of camaraderie that produces the strength to serve out into the community. You also run the Passion, Purpose, Profit Conference every year. How long has that been going? This was our third year of doing that conference. The Passion, Purpose, Profit Conference can be a tongue twister. (laughs) (laughs) And so we've thought about that in terms of even the name. Like, should we think about a different name for this thing? It's Uh, a hard issue to tackle. Yeah. So the name reflects that. (laughs) Yep, it is. Because sometimes it's, you know, it's profit, purpose, passion, right? And so, or sometimes passion and profit are the only two things that exist. Or sometimes the purpose is only tied to the profit and the passion Mm -hmm. doesn't exist. But in any respect, like, you know, we understand and believe firmly, like if you're in business, you're in business to generate positive economic value, right? You're looking to create, in a sense, something out of nothing, right? And so you're not looking to necessarily transfer something that exists from one place and place it into another. Entrepreneurially, you're actually looking to create something brand new that raises everything up. So you wanna generate, and that's profit, to stay in business, to stay sustainable, to, like you generate a profit, right? And so, so it's not about a question of whether or not you're bottom line driven. You're bottom line driven, you have to be. Yeah. If you're not profit or for a profit. But it's not at the expense of, or in place of, it's not an either or proposition. Yeah. It doesn't need to be. And frankly, there's studies that show that things like the more you invest in your people, the more productive they become. Yeah. Things like that. I mean, some of this is just common sense. Now, I don't think it's the motive. You, know, you don't invest in your people so that ultimately and only you become more profitable. Because that's the end of the day, I really don't think a person's going to feel like they're flourishing and thriving over time. They might feel for a season, they might feel for a decade or two. But I am really convinced that people that live their life that way, when they're sitting in the nursing home at the end of life, if they still have their sanity and capacity to think, wonder, at least to a degree, could I have thought about things just a little bit differently, right? And so Mm -hmm. don't 
put yourself in a situation where you have unnecessary regrets. Like yeah. There's no need to. You're smarter than that. You're more talented than that. You're more gifted than that. But, you know, again, you can make money and do well at the same time. And that's kind of what, what we're showing every single day. And we figured, let's take what we're doing. And there's only so many opportunities in the marketplace we can create. But let's create a venue. Let's create a stage. Let's create a place where the broader business community can be a part of this conversation. Got it. So really getting that discussion going with as many people as possible to spread the ideas of here's how you can get more people involved. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, from a number, you look at Ohio, we have 53,000 roughly people who are incarcerated in our state prison system. That doesn't count our county jails. And roughly 20,000 or so are going to get released back into the community over the next year. Now, there's a constant turnover. There's a constant recidivism that exists where people get out and they go back in, et cetera, et cetera. But an unemployment's super low, so companies need workers. And so, like, okay, in my mind, I'm like, great, I'm glad, that, I'm glad we're in this pickle. Because I think it's kind of forcing the hand, or forcing the brain, forcing people to think, about well, maybe we should tap into or look into an alternative source of, mm. of labor than what we've traditionally. Maybe we shouldn't be so just blankety. If you check, now I know we're trying to ban the box, but I, and I have my like I think it's a good thing, but like maybe we should think outside of the box, yeah, right? and be more creative about who. We and banning the box means not having to check whether or not you're a convicted felon, right? Okay, yeah, or have been a convicted felon, right. And then that way, it gives the person kind of more of an opportunity to make the case for why they might be a good fit for a company. And I tell folks... Uh, inspired by the conference, and, and one of the messages that I got away with was policy is not the solution to working with you know, populations that are coming out of prison or even other people who haven't been able to get a job. It has to be much more individual. You have to learn to listen to people and understand where they're coming from. Yeah, there's a balance. It's kind of like a three-legged stool. I mean, you have folks that are kind of in the support service space. You have folks that are making policy decisions. And then you have folks that are in the private sector. You know, like those three do, they need to work together. But I do think at the end of the day, you can pass a piece of legislation that bans the box and still at the end of the day, not create a long-term sustainable solution. Mm. Because as a business, I might not be able to ask that question on the application. So therefore you might not be checking it. Therefore I might not necessarily know. But when I bring you in for that second interview, or when I decide to do a background check, and I realize that you have a background, I can still say because of your background, I don't need that risk in my organization. Mm. And to a degree, there's some legitimacy to that, too, because you do have, as an organization, a reputation to maintain, and you need to be careful about how you go about serving your community through your products and services. That's natural, healthy, and good, right? And so it's really, how do we encourage? So create, let's create, let's create. Let's, the policy will help. Banning the box can potentially help, but it's more than that. Like, mm. we, we got to encourage you know, organizations, CEOs, HR directors, the thing about the why of why would it be a good idea to hire folks that may have had some challenges in their past? Let's think about it for a minute, right? And so that's the bigger, you can't write a piece of legislation that says you are required to think about this issue yeah. <laughs> by law. You know, you can't pass a piece of legislation that says your heart is as hard as a stone, soften it up. <laughs> it just, you can't do that, right? Yeah. I mean, you can encourage and you can create and you should, and there's some things that we should think about. But even that space from a public policy standpoint probably needs to 
be a little bit more creative. Yeah, and one thing you mentioned was for HR professionals to actually take the time, go into the prison, meet with you know, folks, folks who yeah. are, are coming out. Yeah. You develop a heart of empathy, you know, get get involved and get get in the mix. You know, and sometimes the public policy decisions, all well-intentioned for sure, but like sometimes they can create additional challenges. Like, I mean, I think of even like banning the box or expungement or record sealing. Again, I love, principally I love the idea and I think it's great in, in a lot of ways, but when you have a heart for this space and you want to see your company be as open as possible to hiring anyone regardless of their background it's not so much that you want to not know the past mm-hmm. like any coach any good life coach any good coach period any good mentor any good friend digs deep into the past i mean how do you have a healthy relationship when you don't understand the other person's background yeah. like i can't think of a friend that i have who i don't know their background that's the nature of a friendship you know each other yeah so if, how can you help each other if you don't know your past? You yeah. don't know what's coming on. I'm not going to hold it against you, but I'm, we're going to learn how to yeah. navigate. That's where I, you know, I, sometimes I feel that some of the decisions we make from the legislative standpoint feed into the broader cultural challenge of fostering companies with a heart that's focused on relationship. Yeah. So if it's coming from a place where, hey, you know, we're hiding this information, so you're not afraid of it and you can actually take an action and engage with somebody without that being an issue. Right. But it's like, as you start to engage with that person, you want to know that history so that you're going to set them up to succeed and you're going to give them the support that they need in order to do well. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to missing signs or missing something which you could have helped them overcome. And there's a reciprocal nature to that relationship, like where you too, as the person who may not have that background, start to learn more about the background from which that person came and you learn about the dynamics of their story and you learn about the things that were going on in their life, right? You learn more about life in general, right? And the importance of healthy decisions and healthy relationships, even in your own life. So again, that's the benefit of the nature of pursuing what I do think ultimately we as humans really want, but sometimes can't figure out how to attain. And that is authentic, genuine relationships. And that's our biggest challenge relationships of empathy and genuine get to know you-ness. <laughs> I have a question for you. There was a business that hadn't hired people who were incarcerated before and they wanted to start doing so. Is the first place to get involved with the prisons and hire somebody or is it better to have a support system in place with somebody who understands that experience who can be a mentor or coach? It sounds like with Clean Turn you've got many people here who understand what it means to have been through prison and so it's like their eyes they see things differently of what's happening you're hitting it right yeah so i think it starts at the top and i really do i think the senior executive leadership team of the organization the director of hr it starts right there so i I always like the first thing that i would do i would encourage a ceo and the hr director to begin to develop relationships with people who are familiar with the space and even more importantly, start to develop relationships with folks who are incarcerated, who have been previously incarcerated in one way, shape, fashion, or form or another. I mean, Mm -hmm. like, get exposure, develop relationships out, get awareness, because you need to learn the challenges, the obstacles, the dynamics that exist, and then bring that back into, and fold that into, develop HR policies. There's gonna be a culture shift. 
Now, the smaller your organization, the more nimble you are, the easier that might be able to pull that off. A bigger organization, like a nationwide, or that's a more difficult mm. hurdle to kind of overcome in a sense. You start by educating yourself, educating your team, uh, because you don't want to go into it blindly. You don't want to go into it just with a soft heart that says, oh, look, what can I do for these people? This is not a charitable act. This is a, how do we create an organization that's open and inclusive in the broadest sense possible and can create a culture where folks can come in and thrive, right? And so any teacher, I mean, that's why traditionally over time, historically, people really respect and value and have tried to exemplify the Socratic method of a person like Socrates. Like, right. Socrates didn't begin by making statements about what is right or what is true or what is just. Socrates asked questions and drew it out of the person with whom he was conversing and in the process was learning how they were thinking, why they were thinking what they were thinking, etc., etc., and allowed them to be able to get to a conclusion that worked best for their longer-term interest in many ways. And so I think creating that Socratic environment within your HR department, your management team, et cetera, et cetera, in the end will produce a more empathetic, more personable, deeper relationship, committed, loyal, et cetera, company culture. Yeah, it sounds like if you start at the top with cultivating these genuine and authentic relationships that that starts to permeate down through the rest of the company. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for talking to me today. No, thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you are in HR or have exposure to hiring employees, put the Passion Purpose Profit Conference on your calendar for next year. It is an awesome place to share ideas on how to hire talented individuals from non-traditional avenues. I really hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to hear from you. So please leave a review on iTunes or comment on peoplehelpingpeoplepodcast.com. Thanks so much. Until next week. Cheers. Cheers.